we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 So, column. fair warning for both repeat and first-time listeners. This is not our usual dispatch, uh, hence the absence of the standard opening music. It is March 4th, 2017. I am in the uh, usual studio we use here in Midtown Manhattan. It is a Saturday, though, which is weird. Uh, This is the Fifth Column podcast, mostly. This is uh, an experimental release, uh, even by our own fantastically interesting and engrossing, edifying and, uh, and discursive standard. This is this is different. But if it wasn't interesting, at least to me, um, I, we wouldn't be releasing it. I have to admit that my, my compatriots have not heard the, uh, the stuff that I'm going to share with you, but here we are anyways. But fear not, the uh, regular fifth column activities will resume in our, in our next episode, uh, Barring Act of God. Uh, but before we get into sort of the specific strangeness that I have for you today, Uh, A little bit of context and housekeeping for sort of first time listeners. The Fifth Column is an almost weekly media criticism podcast. Uh, I guess I usually call it a rhetorical assault on uh, the media and ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. But I will forego like a really lengthy origin story and try to proceed directly to the point. Uh, This podcast began as an experiment. Uh, So it's appropriate that we're continuing with experiments. Uh, A championship snowboarder told us that we should do a podcast together, and a chick with purple hair suggested that we call it the fifth column, and here we are. If you showed up on a normal day, I would be doing introductions. I would turn to one guy who was sitting beside me drinking a beer and say, this is Michael Moynihan, national correspondent for Vice News, and I would turn to the other guy who might be a little hungover, or he would be drinking some sort of alcohol as well, Uh, and I would say, this is Matt Welch, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. Um, I'd say, how the hell are you? They would respond. We would throw things around. I probably would have remembered to mention that my name is Camille Foster and uh, I work at Freethink, which is an outfit where I do various partner related things because I'm a partner in the company. Uh, And sometimes I help make uh, the fantastic original video and documentary content about the people and ideas that are or will or could change the world. So that is what I do. The three of us have known each other for a really, really long time. We uh, all do media stuff at different places, and we are frequent contributors, um, irregular contributors in some cases, to a bunch of different uh, media outlets. And But as I was saying, uh, were this a regular episode, there would probably be alcohol on the table, and we'd be saying unbelievably important things about, say, Jeff Sessions and his less-than-truthful congressional testimony what it means, why it matters, and whether or not you should care. The rash of terrorist bombing threats uh, against synagogues here in the United States. Uh, and more specifically, and this is Camille talking, not Welch and Moynihan, because I don't know what they think. Uh, the frantic and hysterical national media coverage that these threats have generated. Uh, and I say frantic and hysterical not because um, anti-Semitism isn't a big deal. Uh, it sucks. It's a bad thing. And people who do it are bad. I guess you have to to use those standard boilerplates today. But it's hysterical nonsense because after more than 100 uh, reported bomb threats as of the time of this recording, most of which appear to have been pre-recorded robocalls. And according to CNN, quote, many, unquote, because that is the only context they provide in the article. uh, But many of these threats originated overseas. I don't know if many is half 
or 90%. But what is important is there have been exactly zero bombs discovered. That is a trend that I hope continues. And the only thing that we have had happen uh, recently is one knucklehead uh, was arrested. Uh, He was a copycat inspired by hysterical media coverage. And uh, he was trying to frame his former girlfriend, according to reports, by making threatening phone calls to synagogues and suggesting he was her. So, yeah, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, Maybe we'll get into it the next show. We'll see. Today, um, I would like to share something else with you. Um, It is a pair of conversations about race, race and history Identity and one of my favorite um, writers uh, of all time, James Baldwin. These are topics that have gotten a fair amount of play uh, on the podcast uh, over the almost year that we've been doing it. And oftentimes it's me pushing my heterodox views, uh, railing against tribalism, double standards and my belief. I am articulating my belief that the national conversation about race uh, that we are having in this country makes me want to pull my hair out. Uh, because it is so awful and backwards. Um, in a nutshell, when we talk about race in a contemporary context, this is, again, for the benefit of, of folks who, who haven't heard it or it, maybe it's been broken up all over the place or perhaps I'm just saying it because I want to. In a nutshell, even with uh, all of the intense controversies that have played out recently from Trayvon Martin to Mike Brown and Ferguson uh, to Black Lives Matter and the police shootings and and. Donald Trump uh, referring to uh, inner cities uh, when talking about the places where black people live and then people sort of pretending to be outraged. Even in these uh, sort of best cases, uh, race is a thorny and divisive distraction. It is something that prevents us from understanding problems and generally, in my estimation, prevents us from fixing problems. But I don't have a lot of friends who agree with me on that. Um, at least relative to the people who disagree. Most people disagree with me. A lot of smart people disagree with me. Um, A lot more prominent people who talk about these issues uh, and write about them than I do, um, or than me, uh, at any rate, disagree with me. Uh, And I talked to two of them for a bit, and we had uh, what I thought were really cool and interesting conversations. Um, So I talked to uh, Dr. George Yancey, who is a philosophy professor at Emory, He is the author of numerous books and articles on race and identity, Uh, and he's also a regular contributor at the New York Times opinion vertical called The Stone. Um, I read it. I read it a fair amount, but I'll talk about that a little later. Last month, February, um, I stumbled across his article at The Stone um, on Black History Month, and it would be hard to, to understate how dramatically different our perspectives are on various things. Um, I did not like the piece. I wanted to respond. I wanted to write nasty things on Twitter. Uh, I wanted to uh, send him an email and I wanted to put comments in the article. I definitely forwarded it to a few people uh, with distasteful passages excerpted. But then I decided I would send Dr. Yancey an email. And when I did, he responded And he agreed to come hang out on the podcast and talk to me about the stuff he wrote in the email. I I told him that I wanted to have a a productive, interesting conversation. And I I think we achieved that. But there's a lot of disagreement. I I disagree with most of the stuff he said. It was contentious, but it was respectful and it was interesting and it was definitely inconclusive. Uh, I didn't go out to win 
necessarily, uh, although at some point I might have wanted to. But it is a conversation that I think is totally worth your time. But before we get to that conversation, uh, I'll play you another one, um, which is a conversation that I had prior to that with Dr. Henry Louis Gates. Uh, Dr. Gates is a professor of history at Harvard, uh, the author of numerous books and articles, and an accomplished filmmaker. Um, Yes, this is the same Professor Gates that was arrested after having broken into his own home uh, by the police. Uh, It was a... It was an entire thing that happened in the first year of the Obama administration. I believe it was around like June. And uh, it it sparked a beer summit with the police, um, with the police officer who arrested him and Dr. Gates and Biden drinking, uh, you know, duels or whatever the hell it is he drinks. Uh, But we didn't talk about that. We also didn't talk about that thing with Ben Affleck and his ancestors having owned slaves. We didn't talk about that either. Uh, What we did talk about, however, was our shared admiration for the writing of James Baldwin, a name that you will hear repeatedly uh, in this dispatch. Um, And I am not ashamed of that. I hope you enjoy it. I like talking about James Baldwin. And uh, we also talked about sort of the important parallels between history and filmmaking, why I don't like it when people call my wife a beautiful black woman, my general contempt for Black History Month, although I probably didn't say it that way. In fact, I'm confident I didn't. And why Professor Gates thinks I should be on guard against the possibility of racism happening to me. We disagree on plenty, uh, but we began our conversation with a self-indulgence of my own. I got to talk to Professor Gates for the first time, and I asked him about this really fantastic article that he wrote about James Baldwin uh, back in 1992 uh, entitled The Fire Last Time uh, and was pub- that was published in The New Republic It is interesting. It's got a lot of heart and nuance in it. And this is him responding to my first question. James Baldwin was the first black author I ever read. And it was during the summer of uh, 1965, August. And Camille, as you'll remember, August 1965 was the Watts riots. Mm -hmm. And I was at an Episcopal uh, church camp in West Virginia, which is where I grew up and my family, actually my family on all sides, has lived in an 18-mile radius from where I was born for 250 years. You don't think of West Virginia as being the home of African-American culture, do you? But (laughs) we had black people even up in those hills. And I was attending an Episcopal church camp. And on Sunday, the uh, milk truck, you know, brought over this newspaper, and there were about 102 kids there. And I saw all these kids, mostly they were white. I mean, you know, how many black Episcopalians are going to be in West Virginia, right? <laughs> and all these white kids were gathered around the circle, and they were looking at this paper. And then they, they, I was walking over, and they kind of looked over the shoulder at me. And, um, you know, I knew it was something about race, but I didn't even know. I didn't never heard of Watts. I didn't know what a riot was. I didn't know if that meant black people were killing white people, white people killing black people. This is, I was 14 years old. And... So I, I, they made way, and I looked at this headline. It said, Negroes riot in Watts. So they looked at me, and I didn't know what to say. And um, I went back to my cabin. And that night, an Episcopal priest beat on my door, and he came in, and he handed me a book. He said, I think you might want to read this. And I looked down. There was this black man on the cover staring me up, uh, staring back at me. And I thought, oh, my God, is this the author? And it was Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. Hmm. And I stayed up all night reading that book. And then as soon as I got back from church camp, I ordered all the books that Baldwin had published through the Book of the Month Club. And I would, I had a notebook. Um, and I would write out beautiful uh, sentences or beautiful quotations that I wanted to remember. 
And Camille, I basically just transcribed James Baldwin's whole pages, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he was such a beautiful writer. So then I go to Yale in 69, thanks to affirmative action, of course, and I graduate and I get it. Um, I got a fellowship to go to Cambridge in 1973, the University of Cambridge. And that summer, because I'd written some columns for the Yale Daily News, the Yale School newspaper, I wrote to Time Magazine. They hired me as a correspondent in London. And when I got there, the first story I pitched was to do a piece on black expatriates, black Americans living in Europe, because I knew James Baldwin was living near Nice in the south of France, in Saint Paul de Vence, his long home. And to my amazement, they approved it. So my girlfriend and I, whom I subsequently married, took a boat train to Paris, then took a long train ride to Nice, and I rented a car, and I went to James Baldwin's house. And when I got there, I was shaking so much, I was sweating, and he said to me, who are you interviewing next? He was trying to make me feel relaxed. And I said, Josephine Baker. And you know, the great Josephine Baker, sure. who is a great singer and dancer from the Harlem Renaissance in the 30s and lived in Paris. And she was living in Monte Carlo, which is about an hour away from Baldwin's house. He said, go get her and bring her back to, for dinner. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I drove over there. Josephine Baker kept me waiting 45 minutes. She came down like a black goddess, man. I'm telling you, like, oh, I couldn't believe it. And I said, Miss Baker, Mr. Baldwin, we can bring you up for dinner. And she goes, okay. And she got her her wrap and her pocketbook. And I drove Josephine Baker to James Baldwin's house and had the greatest dinner of my life out in his garden under a, a wooden harvest table. And uh, I wrote an essay about it. And Baldwin had his had four male friends there. Mm-hmm. There was Josephine Baker, my girlfriend, and me. And that was it. And all night long, they told stories about Picasso and Matisse and Richard Wright and Gertrude Stein. Can you imagine, man, being 22 years old and being the audience for Josephine Baker and James Baldwin? A little bit, on account of having read your piece, actually. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. It was the greatest night of my life, without a doubt. And I love James Baldwin. I think that James Baldwin was the the written voice of the civil rights movement, without a doubt. Yeah. And, you know, J- James Baldwin, we're going to be honest here, James Baldwin suffered a lot of um, homophobic reaction from within the black community, um, as well as the white community. And the uh, Eldridge Cleaver famously wrote a horrible essay in his book, The S- uh, Soul on Ice, about James Baldwin specifically being gay and how gay people were bad for black people. You know, it was just terrible homophobia. And it really hurt Baldwin. And I think he changed, he tried to make his voice more strident and less complex. Yeah. And he went through a bad period when his feelings were hurt. But then he came out of it and decided, I'm just going to be James Baldwin. And he wrote about being gay and about being black and about being complex and that we had to stand up and tell the truth with, from within the race. So, He's my hero, and I teach him every year, and uh, and I love James Baldwin, and and I I'm I'm so happy that Raoul Peck's film I Am Not Your Negro, which is about uh, James Baldwin, and in his own words, is a finalist for the Academy Award in the documentary category. Have you seen that film? Oh yeah, two weeks ago. Okay. On January 29th, we flew Raoul over from Paris here to Harvard. We had a screening at the Kendall Square Theater, and then I did a Q and A with Raoul Peck. Um, I loved it. It's great. You know, and I would say, but I have three friends. <laughs> Ezra Edelman is a finalist for his OJ documentary. Raul is a finalist for his Baldwin documentary. 
documentary, and my dear friend Ava DuVernay is a finalist for the 13th. Yeah. So I can't pick, <laughs> you know, I have to wish all three of them, uh, <laughs> they, any three of them deserve the Academy Award, and I'm so happy that um, Oscars so white a year ago become documentary so black. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a that was an interesting an interesting controversy. You know, we have a mutual affection for Baldwin. I, I really do owe a, a lot of my my own sort of renewed appreciation for him uh, in recent years and sort of revisiting his work to to having read your article. Um, but you well, know, having you. having watched that film, you know, there was something that it it brought to mind for me, and you know, it's a film that in the credits says written by James Baldwin. But, you know, as you know, it borrows material from across the broad sweep of his career and kind of stitches it together. And this is, of course, cinema, not history. But the two disciplines do yeah. share some important qualities, you know, perspective and subjectivity. Um, and there is a quote sort of from the film. Um, well, that is from the film. I haven't been able to source it uh, doing some deliberate Googling, but where Baldwin says history isn't something that happens. It's now. Um, and while yeah. I lack the benefit of context and perhaps you can provide some, it, it does seem to me that, you know, in a lot of our retelling of history and our contextualization and our necessary reducing it to something that is bite-sized enough for us to feel like we understand, we understand it from our vantage point. And, you know, one of the things that has always been, not always, but in recent years has really come to sort of dominate my thinking uh, about things like Black History Month and the way that we often talk about people like Baldwin is that in venerating them um, and in sort of celebrating these traditions in these very, this race, this race specific lens that we really do qualify it. And we take something that, again, to, to quote Baldwin, because he's much better at most things than me, um, <laughs> he takes something like the history of the Negro, uh, which is the history of the American people. And and you you make it one specific thing. It's a. Uh, you know, my wife, I, I will routinely, routinely take her out places and she's she's gorgeous and wonderful. And people will say, wow, your wife is a, a beautiful black woman. And I say, you can you could stop it. Beautiful. Um, that is totally sufficient. <laughs> In fact, that is a higher compliment. Um, so I wonder if of you could, could kind of talk about that dynamic in the context of, say, Black History Month and even the way that we talk about Baldwin. Um, because, you know, another thing I've, I've borrowed from your work, yeah. you know, is just an understanding of, of the limitations of, of race as a concept. It is, uh, it mm -hmm. is imprecise. Um, it, it, it has a lot of historical baggage. Uh, and it figures prominently in history and in contemporary matters, but it's also a concept that changes dramatically across time and space. Excellent point. Uh, what you're saying is that we, we all have multiple identities. You know, I said earlier, but my family's from West Virginia. Um, being from West Virginia, the state motto is mountaineers are always free. People would look at my work or see me on TV and think, well, what of, of all his different identities, they would never think that being a West Virginian is important, but it's fundamentally important to me, and it shaped me, my sense of rugged individualism and stubbornness and the determination to stand tall and tell the truth from, you know, no matter, you know, what the cost. That comes from being from West Virginia, and plus um, I had a terrible football um, um well, I had a football accident when I was 14 that was terribly misdiagnosed mm -hmm. by a doctor in West Virginia. And um, so, you know, I walk around with a cane. Well, that's important to my um, identity. And, of course, being an African-American, being a father, 
um, is important to my identity. I have two lovely daughters, and now I have a granddaughter. That's important to my identity. And growing up, uh, you know, I, I was a very went through a very religious period. I was saved when I was 12, and from the 12 to 14, I went to a small black Methodist church, my grandmother's church. And then when I was 14, I joined my father's church, the Episcopal Church. All the gates have been Episcopalians for a century. And that was very important to my identity. And I could go on and on. All I'm saying is that I am uh, neither you nor I nor anyone listening to this wonderful interview can be confined by one designation, one label. Ultimately, we are all human beings, but we occupy what we call different subject positions. And I think it's important that we celebrate our diversity within ourselves, the difference within difference. All, what's that mean? There are 42 million African Americans. There are more African Americans than all the people in Canada. There's not, and I teach a big lecture course at Harvard, Introduction to African American Studies with my colleague Larry Bobo, Mm -hmm. the great sociologist. And the last line of my last lecture is, 42 million African Americans, that means there are 42 million ways to be black. You cannot have an ideological bully telling you how to be black. You can be, because in the history of our people, there have been people who were conservative, people in the center, people who were liberal, people on the left. And sometimes, if you live as long as W.E.B. Du Bois, you repudiate your own position. (laughs) 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 Du Bois Bois was a pan-Africanist. He was a socialist. He he was an integrationist. Then he ended up a communist. I mean, my God, there are different times when he would call his own self out, as we say. So that you can't define uh, black people in one way. I have black friends who are conservative. Thank God, not that many, because <laughs> I want them <laughs> to be left of center. But I'm, I love them just the same, and some in the center and, and some on the hard left. And that kind of – or our sexual identities, our, our gender, gender uh, preferences and, and orientations. It's important. James Baldwin suffered, as I said, from sure. being vilified for being gay. And people have a right to be gay or trans. I just did a fabulous interview with Janet Mock for – the next season of Finding Your Roots. And Janet Mock was a brilliant, a genius, and has the right to define her identity the way that she wants. And we have to stand up. Um, we have to stand up for that. You know, being black, telling the story of black people, <clears throat> excuse me, telling the story of black people is often an allegory for telling the story of other oppressed or suppressed identities or, or peoples. That's why I think it's incumbent upon us to stand up for um, um, the immigration policies that Barack Obama and, and Bill Clinton espoused and to fight any any manifestation of xenophobia in, in this administration. It's just not American, it's not healthy, and, we, and, and it's not part of our tradition. But that's why you tell the story of the black particular, yeah. because it's about humanity in general. Well, I, I wonder, there's sort of two things that jump out at me. First, you know, outcomes, outcomes matter too, and, and while... Barack Obama certainly espoused um, certain values that were, you know, diametrically opposed to values that have been espoused by by the new president. Um, in terms of outcomes, I mean, he he deported plenty of people, um, and and oftentimes when we look at these things and we're we're paying attention to the rhetoric um, and not the results, we we can miss the various important ways in which people have failed or have uh, actually acted in a particular way. So it's it's worth noting that both with respect absolutely. To, to absolute immigrate with immigration broadly and refugees in particular. You are absolutely correct. I was at a dinner last night for um, our visiting lecture um, 
David Bromwich from Yale giving the Nathan Huggins lectures. And one of the things that someone pointed out at the table, there were um, several, William Joyce Wilson was there, and many people. Hmm. I can't remember who said it, but someone said exactly what you just said. He said, for as much as we love Barack Obama, uh, <laughs> there were blemishes on that record, and one was this uh, a huge number of people deported. And that person was saying that it was um, unfair and that we should have protested that. And, of course, many people didn't protest things that we were uncomfortable with uh, under the Obama administration because the right wing was so busy. The birthers were denying he was an American, and people were giving him such a hard time. that. And I, I don't think that that was necessarily good. I think that the fact that, you know, Armstrong Williams told me the other day, I haven't fact-checked it, but when I taped his program for, for their new Africa series, the 12% of African-American men voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, why? If, if that's true, I presume he had no reason to make that up. I've, I've seen similar numbers, yeah. Why? You know, that's shocking, right? I mean, the day before the election, you couldn't have, I wouldn't have believed that if you told me, no matter what. So then in retrospect, you have to say, okay, why? So did, um, the, did the Democratic Party reach out to those men? Were they um, unemployed? Did their economic situation get worse in the eight years of the Obama? Did it get better? Did it stay the same? I mean, we need to understand why that many black men or 8% of the overall African-American community would find Donald Trump's message appealing. I, and I think one reason that also came up to, at dinner was that the this generation is the first in maybe ever in the history of America not to believe in the idea of progress, not to believe that they were going to do better than their parents. Which, which is pretty and astonishing considering the to, progress we've made in, in recent years, particularly yeah. on race, racial issues. Um, and, and I know it is, but, and I know people tend to view things through the, la- through the lens of the last you know, 12 months or so, but I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. People view things through their pocketbook or, or well, sure. their That's true too. of economic well-being. And I think there's a sense of economic vulnerability. You know, I'm, I'm referring to West Virginia again. But the people, excuse me, the people I grew up with thought it, everybody worked at the paper mill where my father worked. My father worked at paper mill in the daytime, and he worked as a janitor for Chesapeake Potomac Telephone Company, which is a branch of AT&T, uh, in the evening. And the... Um, he did that for 37 years, and he did it because he, he and my mother deferred gratification. They had two boys, and they had put my brother through dental school. Dr. Paul Gates is an oral surgeon and very proud of him. He's the chief of dentistry at Bronx Lebanon Hospital. And little old me from Yale and the University of Cambridge bringing up the rear. Now, they believed that if they, you know, good citizens, worked hard, daddy worked two jobs, we always had new textbooks, new clothes, you know, whatever. If they did that, their kids would uh, ascend the economic and social scale in America. But now people don't believe that necessarily deferred gratification and hard work will yield that kind of result. That makes them subject to, that makes them despair, creates a great deal of anxiety, and makes them subject to appeals that um, might not in the end be good for them. But And I think... Um, we'll have to see what happens over the next four years, but that's why I think um, 12% of black men voted the way that they did in the presidential election. I wonder if you could talk just a, a, a little bit um, about sort of the contemporary 
contemporary use of race and, and the way in which we use um, sort of history or people relate to history. I, I sometimes worry um, when I hear people sort of talk about us, um, the suffering that we have gone through in this country, um, sort of borrowing, um, using some kind of alchemy to borrow all of the, the hundreds of years of suffering and to wear it on their shoulders. Um, I, I worry that that both diminishes, diminishes the suffering that took place um, and creates sort of uh, any number of weird expectations about the world that they actually live in, uh, where people presume that when they walk into a room, the very first thing that happens uh, is people see them for, for who they are um, with respect to their race. When, you know, simply owning that kind of belief in and of itself can be debilitating. Um, I worry that we're not doing enough to to try to to try to abolish race pride, sort of in the w- way that uh, Zori Neale Hurston describes when she says race pride and me had to go. I think that the reason that we have to explore our roots is, in the end, to transcend them. It's a paradox. It's um, you have to be a citizen of the world. There's no question about it. You can't grow up and only know about the heroes of black history, right? <laughs> you need to know about the history of civilization, the history of the West, the history of Asia and India. You have to be a well-educated citizen of the world. But the only way that you can do that, the only way that you could embrace your full humanity is to be standing on some firm ground. And the firm ground that you and I stand on is as both Americans and as African-Americans. You, you just, you can't, a Chinese person doesn't walk in a room and disavow their, their Chinese-ness, as it were. They represent a century. I self-identify as, as, as human, and, and I kind of stop there. I, I don't really traffic in, in racial identity, and I certainly don't do race pride. Um, and it's, it's just something that, fortunately for me, I live in an era where that's not required. And, you know, the, looking at the broad no, sweep of history, that, you know, that is, it's a new thing. It's new, as is uh, sort of freedom as yeah, an idea. And- and no one should, no, no one should um, be an ideological bully and try to tell you how to be black or how to be a human being. The God knows I would not be the person to do that. No, it's happened to you, unfortunately. Yeah, but I would caution you to remember one thing. Though you might see yourself as a human being, when you walk into a room, very few Americans see you that way first. They see you as a male and an African-American male. And that means that you inherit inadvertently, um, whether you want to or not, all these stereotypes, connotations, and associations con- that, that are just part and parcel of being a black American uh, and a black male. And you have to know that. And if you have a child, your child has to know that too. That, that's a form of self-protection. So you don't have to be you know, tr- wearing a red, black, and green, or dashikis, or have an afro to be black. <laughs> but you have to be. <laughs> but you have to know the history of the black experience and the history of race, and particularly, brother, the history of racism, because sooner or later you're going to encounter it, and you're going to. It's like standing up too quickly and hitting your head, and you see stars. You go, "Oh my God, what's that?" That's called anti-black racism. And woe to the black person who doesn't know that history. Well, I would love to Look, talk love to you. On your show. More. You got to have me back sometime. Uh, you, you? you tell me when you call me. We'll, we will set up a day and you can have the whole 20 hours. I'll extend the show so that we can become best friends. But thank <laughs> you. So, to you Camille. Thank you so much, thank, thank Dr. You, Gates. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Take care. The fifth column. It was a real privilege to talk to Professor Gates. Um, I think his work is thoughtful and nuanced in ways that uh, many people who talk about race and history that their work is not. As I said, we disagree 
on plenty. There is so much that I wanted to talk to him about, for example, uh, that I didn't get to, both things that I had questions about um, and things that I just wanted him to explain in a bit more detail, particularly miffed that I didn't get to talk to him about Oscar So Black uh, and why I thought that was like just totally silly. Um, but if you're interested in my perspective on that, you can find it. And The 13th, which is a documentary that he loves and I hated, and it would be great if I could maybe get him to hook me up with the director so we could talk about that. And the last bit that came up about the, uh, the armor that I needed, the, the protection I needed um, from the world that I should be anticipating racial discrimination, that I really wish we could talk about at length. But it comes up again in the next conversation with Dr. George Yancey. And as I mentioned before, Dr. Yancey is a professor of philosophy at Emory, um, a fact that will be palpably obvious in a few moments. Uh, he is the author of numerous books, including Black Bodies and White Gazes and Our Black Sons Matter. Uh, and as I mentioned at the front end of the uh, podcast, towards the tail end of my monologue there, he, uh, he contributes to uh, something called The Stone at the New York Times, which you may or may not be familiar with. Um, it, is a, it is an opinion vertical that surveys sort of the philosophy landscape and has contributors from, from all across that universe who kind of talk about big ideas oriented stuff. I try to read it all the time. I try to read everything that pops up there. I, I find it interesting. I like big idea stuff. And I stumbled across Dr. Yancey's piece there uh, back on February 9th, 2017, uh, which um, you should probably read it after you've listened to this conversation, if you have listened this far, and if you have not already uh, read that article. Uh, the article was entitled, It's Black History Month, Look in the Mirror, um, and I hated it. I still do. Uh, that's not a commentary on style or anything like that, but, you know, philosophy, and we, we get into the reasons I hate it. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we didn't settle our differences. This is a thick exchange, and that's okay. And, uh, you know, after a little bit of context setting, there is a lot of respectful, uh, entirely consensual, intellectual grappling. Uh, Dr. Yancey has the uh, benefit of listening to the conversation uh, that I had with Dr. Gates prior to our conversation. So he and I and you, dear listener, are all in the same place. So a quick heads up. There are at least a few embarrassing mispronunciations on my part, uh, a dizzying number of philosophers, authors, and academic stuff that gets name checked and concepts that are, you know, explored. Uh, and there's a lot more kind of forceful disagreement here as well. Um, but we started this exchange with me trying to offer my best rendition of his perspective. I wanted to be sure that Dr. Yancey and I were on the same page uh, and that he knew that I got his perspective um, before I started to kind of challenge aspects of it. Uh, I didn't want to engage with a straw man. I wanted to engage with the, the best possible version of his idea. So I do that. He kind of gives me uh, some additional context and then we kind of get into it. And I, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you do. So I'm going to transition to me talking, but keep in mind, these ain't my sentiments. These are his. I like Dr. Yancey, disagree with 90 to 95% of what he said, but here you go. Your principal concern um, throughout a lot of your work is bringing to the fore um, the 
extreme circumstances that have faced black Americans uh, in the United States, the ex- highlighting the extent to which uh, America has fallen short of its promise and its aspirations, um, specifically with respect to um, black Americans. And in so doing, uh, part of what you unpack is the fact that there is sort of a broad culpability uh, when it comes to people who live today um, and who have benefited from, even if they don't actively participate in, even if they've never supported, um, but they benefit from the legacy of what sort of the institutions that have been built as a consequence of you know years of subjugation. Um, and uh, I think there is, you know, especially in there, there's two pieces that you wrote that I wanted to highlight. Dear White America is another that you wrote back uh, December mm. 24th of 2015, um, that there is something that you do at the, at the top of these pieces where you are you are very plainly and clearly trying to sort of do this in a way um, that will be well received. You in mm. that in that first piece, you make a point of presenting yourself as. Um, someone who has been a subjugator of women, that you, mm. by by nature of being a man in this particular country, have participated in and are participating in, in any number of cases, despite your best intentions, um, sort of the subjugation of women. And by extension, um, you know, when you call out um, whiteness and white people broadly, um, you're, you're not trying to sort of single them out in, in, a, in a way to, to make them feel uniquely guilty, but to try to bring to the fore um, something that we, we sort of have to understand in order to, in order to deal with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, is, that, is that about right? Where, where am I yeah, getting things absolutely. wrong? That's a, that's a, actually, that's a charitable, very nice um, uh, rendering of uh, Dear White America and sort of the, the ethos and the overall sort of philosophical assumptions that inform my work about about whiteness. Um, do you like for me to say something about that? Please. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, and in Dear White America in particular, uh, there was, in many ways, that piece is an expression of my pedagogy. Uh, my pedagogical uh, approach has always been one of exemplifying a certain kind of vulnerability. And if you look at the etymology of the term vulnerability, it means to be wounded. So there's a way in which I undergo wounding in the front of my my students and the idea is to function as a mirror in terms of which they're able to also conceivably engage in forms of vulnerability and hence forms of wounding so the the idea then is to engage in a kind of dangerous space you know uh, James Baldwin I remember um, uh, Dr. Gates mentioned referencing Baldwin and you referencing Baldwin the other day yeah I think the three of us are all all big fans of his yeah right absolutely and, and Baldwin says you know to act is to be committed and to be committed is to be in danger and of course the problem is that white people don't want to be in danger because that means giving up their identities well I'm often trying to create um, a classroom setting that is dangerous now that doesn't mean you know, blows, you know, exchanging blows. It means asking a set of questions that, one, situate individuals and students within their full historicity and within the context of their social, um, within the context of their, their social being. So the idea is not to obfuscate or to avoid that question. 
And by doing so, that creates a danger because then the individual, right, the person, has to recognize the ways in which he or she is related to a certain kind of collectivity. And therefore, being a part of that collectivity, they're also a part of certain institutional structures and certain forms of historical sedimentation. And here's Baldwin, of course, where he says, you know, uh, history is not something that's the past. History is forever in the present. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, John Warren is a very interesting rhetorician who talks about the ways in which um, history, or the things that we do, rather the the, the, the sorts of performances that we engage in, if they're if it's whiteness or if it's maleness, are historical performances. So we're doing history in in the present. Um, so there's a way in which I also want to characterize the quotidian or mundane. Uh, existential angst under which black people live every day of their lives. And that is probably similar to what Cornel West says when he talks about the funk of life. Um, you know, he reminds us that we're born between, um, between urine and feces, right? There's a way in which he wants not to um, deodorize the reality of what we undergo as human beings, whether it's sexism, xenophobia, racism, classism, you name it. And so what I do then is I try as best I can to give a descriptive account of the facticity of black suffering, the ways in which black bodies have undergone forms of unconscionable and unspeakable pain and suffering from castration to being burned alive, to being raped, to being alienated. Uh, learning how to hate one's body because we have the wrong hips and the wrong, you know, the wrong lips and skin color and so on. So that is sort of the point for me of philosophical embarkation is to give a clear exegesis of what it means to be in white America. And many times, as, as, as um, Maya Angelou has said, you know, there's a way in which when Shakespeare says, you know, has his character say to be or not to be, we were already told uh, we are we're on the side of not being. So there's a way in which black identity is already out, right? So I mean, if your listeners are some philosophers, which would be great, but that's okay. I define my terms. Um, <laughs> so to say that black people uh, exist in America is to say, in some sense, we're already ontologically out, meaning that our very being is denied and is a site of nullification. So I tie that existential nullification of black bodies. I tie that into what it means to be white. So if what it means to be white in America is to occupy a position of hegemony, to occupy a position of privilege, to occupy, occupy a position of immunity, and indeed a site of being, then there's a way in which to be white in America is to have one's existence predicated upon the denigration in this case of black bodies and bodies of color. So there's, a, there's this inextricable, well, I'm not sure if I want to call it inextricable, mm-hmm. but difficult, um, there's this difficult relation of uh, disentangling uh, the ways in which white bodies function as parasites vis-a-vis black bodies as hosts. So, that, so in Dear White America, mm-hmm. I mean, I really was, it really, what I considered to be was a, was a letter of love. It was really a way of reaching out uh, and showing my vulnerability and asking white people, and this is why I, I decided to deploy a kind of missive um, mode of engagement, uh, to, uh, to unsettle them, to 
help them to not to flee and uh, and seek safety or not to what I call suture, which means to sew up themselves, but to be prepared to unsuture themselves, to allow what I was saying in, right, to allow them to undergo a form of of what I would like to call white double consciousness, where they're able to see what it means to be black through black eyes or through the gift of the black gaze. But as you know, or maybe you don't know, I received a great deal of hate mail in response to that letter of love. There's a lot to yeah, unpack sure. there. And and before I get to the to the sort of response um, to the note, I, I do want to kind of engage on the ideas. And there's something you said at the beginning uh, uh, of your remarks there about the full historicity. Um, I believe that's the phrase that you use. Um, sure, uh, or, his, or historicity, sure. Historicity. Sorry about that. Uh, I am not a philosophy uh, <laughs> philosopher <laughs> okay. uh, or, or a professor. I also don't have a PhD, uh, but, but I'll try no, to engage I, nonetheless. I, I heard you engage with Gates, man. You, you're brilliant. So. Oh, that is uh, incredibly generous of you. I'll see if you still think so at the end of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, to, to begin there... Um, you know, in the in the conversation I had with with Professor Gates, one of the things I said early on was that, you know, history, history in and art have a, a great deal in, in common, that they are, in fact, abstractions of reality. And when we talk about the full history, I think this is actually the the principal point of disagreement for us um, mm-hmm. between you and I uh, and perhaps between my, myself and many other people um, that talk about race in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um and, and for me, history doesn't begin with the founding of America um, or the institution of slavery here in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that there is there is two ways in which we use a a lens, the, the racial lens in which with which to view American history and an aperture that is simply too small by virtue mm-hmm. of the fact that we're looking at American history. You know, the broad mm-hmm. sweep of history, if I if I go back um, and I, I look at, say, just the, the whole continuum of humanity. Um, I I see this existential struggle uh, for human liberty and freedom. And rather than encountering the United States, seeing the Constitution um, of the United States and, and a bunch of very high ideals expressed in it that we, we never fully attain, um, I'm, that it's not surprising that we don't attain them. At the time it was written, it was radical. And since that time, we have been striving to, and, and I'm using that we in a very general way, but since that time, we've been striving to try and achieve this this thing that has never existed before. Mm. Uh, and I think proceeding from the conclusion that, well, of course, you know, well, black people should have always been free in the United States sort of obscures that fact. It obscures the fact that, you know, in Russia, um, serfdom was thriving uh, at the same time slavery was thriving here in the United States. And while they are different and important and meaningful ways, by the end of sort of slavery in the United States around the time that the Civil War was getting started and when serfdom ended, um, the, the status of these populations was not dissimilar, that slavery existed in, in Africa, as uh, Dr. Gates has pointed out in his own writing um, uh, and, and has received a great deal of criticism for um, and, and slavery, in fact, is is sort of universal, um, that deprivation has occurred all across humanity and that most people throughout most of history have been subjugated. So there's something there's something a, a bit arbitrary about starting the rendering of history at this point and about making sure. sort of the adjudication of past wrongs, uh, primarily about whiteness 
versus blackness. So I'll, sure. I'll shut up and, and give you a chance to respond to that. Oh, ex- excellent. That, that's, that's beautiful. Um, I think that part of what you're saying is, that I, I can accept, and that is, is sort of the, the I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say relatively arbitrariness of where one begins. Agmatist in me says, look, there are certain kinds of aims that I'm after. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain kind of purpose here, certain kinds of interests that are driving my inquiry. Uh, but not just interests and aims. There's also the need to survive. There's also the need to, to stay alive. So it's important to tell a certain kind of story. Now, while it's true that we can go beyond, let's say, 1619, right, mm-hmm. or beyond the founding of the, you know, the, the 13 colonies in, in North America, um, when, you know, when, when Ellison talks about invisibility or when Baldwin uh, writes that letter to his nephew, or when Richard Wright talks about Bigger Thomas, or Toni Morrison talks about Pecola Breedlove, or R.G. Lord talks about what it means to be black and lesbian. I think that it's important that those realities are not arbitrary. Those realities are orchestrated. In other words, the ways in which they either feel invisibility or the ways in which uh, Morrison's uh, uh, protagonist, Pecola Breedlove, undergoes a form of internalized self-hatred, which is a result of internalizing the white gaze, or the experiences that R.G. Lord experiences on that train with that white woman who's looking and she sees a bug, or or Audre Lorde wonders whether she sees a bug next to her. In fact, Audre Lorde comes to find out that it is her own body that the white woman fears and finds disgusting. Um, So what I would argue, and I I think that you're a libertarian, I think that's your position, or partly your position, Um, it's the same uh, kind of counter-argument that I would give to the existentialist um, some existentialist philosophers who argue that, look, racism is a tribalistic site. It's a, it's a site that incorporates all kinds of binaries, um, all kinds of forms of balkanization that are deeply problematic. I got that. But I think what I don't want to do, however, is to argue that um, it's arbitrary to think about the ways in which black bodies move through, let's say, the Middle Passage. So the Middle Passage then becomes a very fruitful, a very fruitful oceanic experience that is kind of a liminal space for black folk, and we have to put scare quotes around, black folk coming from Africa. So the history of the transatlantic slave trade, vis-a-vis the so-called New World, is a unique experience. And while it's true that there were forms of slavery, and I'm going to put scare quotes around that, in Africa, from the readings that I've done, when many of those uh, many of those chiefs, uh, kings, found out about um, um, the specific form of of slavery in the form of white supremacy, uh, they would stop that exchange. Um, and even in in uh, African countries where there was uh, forms of quote unquote slavery, uh, black people had greater mobility who were enslaved, let's say through war or something like that. The the imprisoned one or or the enslaved one even had the the possibility of moving up in terms of the world and in, in terms of that social structure. So I'm arguing that white supremacy within the United States and within in Europe is a unique historical configuration mm-hmm. that isn't replicated over time. And I think that we have to, we have to think about that 
and particularly in terms of its then unique existential, political, social, even aesthetic implications um, for black bodies. So even though we can stretch beyond, let's say, 1619, which, which I grant, I'm arguing that if we go too universal, then we'll miss the concretization of a historical period. And I don't think you wanna, want to obfuscate, obfuscate that. And at the same time, I want to argue that, look, the universal is already contained in the particular. In other words, the black, and I'm, again, scare quotes, the black experience, right? Because, again, you know, what does black refer to? Here, uh-huh. right? sure. Those individuals in America are self-identified as black vis-a-vis, let's say, the Middle Passage or those you know, who have grown up in America where their parents and grandparents have systematically suffered under, uh, fr- from slavery to black codes, uh, through Reconstruction, through you know Jim Crow, and contemporary forms of new Jim Crowism, I think that the universal is already present. In other words, black people have already experienced levels and forms of, of interpolative forces and forms of citation, forms of oppression, forms of um, degradation that reflect the human experience. So what I don't want to do is particularize the black experience in such a way that I don't want to go universal. In fact, I want to argue that the universal is the human universal experience, if you will, is embedded within the concretization of black suffering itself. Well, and and I think this is interesting. I mean, at first, just with, with respect to the uniqueness of the institution of slavery in the United States and, and the slave trade uh, between the United States and, and Africa, uh, and even the, the characterization that you offered um, with respect to African leaders discovering uh, the way in which slavery was being carried out and deciding mm. not to participate in it anymore. These are propositions that are at, at a minimum uh, debatable. Um, and, and perhaps and perhaps that's the most that we can say for those things. Um, and I, I think, you know, to try to to try to pull out a little bit here, um, the reason that you are engaged in this, um, you, you mentioned survival. Um, and, and I want to I want to sort of pivot in that direction. But I, I want to make certain to check this box as well, um, is that there is a, a moral concern here. That there is an injustice in the in the most fundamental sense of the word justice. That that we are, and you you're right. You 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 got me. I'm a I'm a I'm a classical liberal, um, and my my philosophy sort of originates there. Um, but you know, while we don't want to obscure, I think there is a there is a danger in exaggerating, um, and there is a danger in trying to go too far to make a particular category of people's suffering uh, sort of representative of all suffering in humanity. I mean, we, we do have at our disposal all, all of human history uh, and we don't actually have to have to do that. So th- those, those things um, sort of stand out to me as sort of points that we want to pay attention yeah, to, especially sure, the, sure. the moral, the moral dimension of this, because there is a way in which um, sort of, homogenizing uh, guilt, Absolutely. like taking it and, and and pulling it all the way forward to today, uh, where we are making equally guilty uh, of past crimes, people who have ancestors who were never owners of slaves in the United States, um, who perhaps have always objected to all of their ancestors, perhaps have always objected to um, the slave trade and mistreatment of black people on those grounds and who themselves, their ancestors were, in fact, subjugated um, because white or black 
Um, it is very likely, if you are alive today, that you have ancestors who were, in fact, subjugated in some meaningful and very real sense. Uh, and, I mean, I think there's a danger in, in sort of going back and, and excusing excusing anyone. I mean, if you're going to excuse um, African slave traders um, because perhaps some of them eventually realized just how bad things were in the Americas, mm. um, again, a, a point that I would I'm, – I'm not – I'm not sure I would agree with, but it's debatable. Um, I mean, it seems to me that on the same grounds, one ought to excuse a white person who who lives today and that there's something immoral about people being about parceling out guilt uh, in that way um, or responsibility. Um, sure. So I, again, I'll, I'll stop there so that we can, yeah, we can sure. sort of well, make you a said, You've said a lot, so if I, I forget, I don't need to come back. No, um, no, it's fine. Uh, it's it's interesting that I mean, this is all very, 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 very important stuff. I mean, Hortense Spillers, uh, literary figure who does brilliant work. She she talks about a certain kind of uh, psychic um, trauma, a certain kind of embodied. Um, oh, what does she call it? A certain kind of embodied. Um, trauma that uh, needs to be reconciled vis-a-vis those um, those kings or, or, or those leaders in Africa who sold us into slavery, right? She says that needs to be addressed. And, and she says it in such a way as to suggest that there's a way in which our bodies cry out for an answer to that question. And while I would agree, uh, and again, I think you're right, it is debatable, uh, regarding uh, the the role that um, chiefs or kings or whomever those individuals who profited from uh, the slave trade, right, where they were given whether metal or or weapons or what have you in exchange for black bodies, um, and I and again a contested a contested claim I, I, I grant that, but what I'm not in terms of in terms of whether or not they once they found out the the horrific nature of of the slave trade, they backed off. But what I don't want to do, and what I'm rather what I'm afraid that happens here is that white people tend to uh, obfuscate this issue, and so that, so that when we talk about uh, uh, Africans who, in, who engaged in the slave trade, we then equate what they did with uh, white individuals who in the slave trade. But the problem with that is that even if they did, uh, even if they did sell their 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 own people is is that wrong? Of course it is, um, because they're somehow quote unquote black or African. Does that exempt them? No. But what I don't want to do is conflate the two, because the body that's being sold is the body that will become the wretched of the earth, right? Um, and the, the 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 white individual who's receiving that body or who's helping to carry out. Um, the the ideology or the the instrumentalization of slavery is benefiting from that and while the african who engages in that is part of that transaction financial or 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 otherwise material in some way i don't want to conflate conflate the two um but also uh, there was another point that you raised um that I, i want to say that for me um, even if you have, uh, for example, indentured white folk who came to, the, to, the, to North America, uh, there's some data to suggest that they were in many ways 
treat it like black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's even grant that. And, and some, some were even treated treated worse by some accounts. The, the Irish uh, in particular were permitted to do labor that people would not permit uh, their, their slaves to do, having invested yes. money in them. Now, now, now of course, what, what we don't want to do is we don't want to – I don't think we want to argue uh, about – we don't want to argue who suffers more or less. I don't, I don't want to argue that. I mean point. I think that's but kind I, of a fundamental part of what, what you're arguing overall though. That, that no, the not, suffering not of blacks of, not have been... in terms of a hierarchy, but mm-hmm. in terms of uh, a certain kind of um, descriptive account. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, sure. uh, I don't know. I don't know. And we had, we had a historian. We could get them on, right? I don't know. <laughs> and, and they don't know either because history is history. Yeah, is right, right, right. <laughs> but this I do know. This yeah. I do know. I do know that Mary Turner, mm-hmm. uh, turn of the century, uh, was, was um, a black woman who whose husband was innocent and who was lynched. And what the white men did is they hung her up by her ankles and they threw motor, motor oil on her body and gasoline and they set her alight. Uh, at which point, uh, as her body was burning and her clothes were burning, a white man walked over with a big knife and stabbed her in the abdomen mm. and opened her abdomen. And the baby, the infant, fell out and hit the ground. And according to the reports, it made you know at least one cry at which point he goes over and he crushes its head beneath his boot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know the story of Sam Hose, or we know the story of Claude Neal, who was castrated and whose penis was stuffed into his mouth and then whose testicles were then stuffed into his mouth. I don't know of an account where this happened with the Irish. But sure. In addition, I, now, I, I'm not I don't saying, either. By, I'm not saying by that that somehow mm-hmm. black people suffered more. I'm saying that black people suffered differently. And I think that difference makes a difference in terms of how the ontology works here, in terms of how the ontology, namely the being of black bodies, are perceived vis-a-vis the Irish. But also keep in mind that the Irish, the Italians, Jews, there's a lot of literature on this, Mm -hmm. that they became white. Sure. There are ways in which they were able to to fit within the system in in ways in which black bodies were always and continue to be a contaminant of that very and of that very of that very um, soci- uh, that very uh, polity. So I would I would argue that the black body, unlike the Irish body, continues to be the wretched of the earth. Continues to be that blight. Uh, that continues to be a site of the anti-citizen. Um, so there, I think we want to make that sort of give that kind of genealogical account. So 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 here here here. This is an interesting way of putting it. So yes. Uh, when we, we put our cards on the table, I think we need to give genuine uh, and as and as honest and as re- as robust as we can give uh, accounts of the ways in which different groups have suffered. I think that genealogy is important. Those genealogies are important, rather. But at the same time, I think we have to be true to the phenomenology of that. In other words, the lived experience that those groups differentially uh, experience without creating a hierarchy. Well, and, and I think part of the reason that you want to try to – and there's so many things I want to go back and talk about. But in the interest of sort of advancing the conversation, I'm going to go to, towards the last point there. Um, but when you talk about the the reality of it uh, and the lived experience, I, I suspect that part of what you mean is sort of this this phenomena by which this – there is a continuum of sort of blackness – in America and in mm. uh, an, an existing black identity and in some mm. way, shape or form, um, a manifestation of all of that suffering in that 
black identity um, today in a contemporary standpoint. So you're understanding it's understanding the past in order to understand the perspective of people who live today, both with respect to the historical suffering that was endured by this group of people um, and whatever other contemporary forces are still arrayed against them. Um, and, I, and I understand that that's the, the argument that's being made, but I, I think there's two things. I, I don't challenge, um, I don't challenge the, the validity of the belief. I believe that people, people feel very strongly that they are part of a group that has been historically victimized Mm -hmm. um, and that there is even a persistent belief that the system is taking advantage of them today. Um, But I I do wonder about the the origin of that that sentiment Um, and perhaps origin isn't the right word. Um, but I, I'm reminded of, you know, a passage from The Fire Next Time. And as you know, um, the, the Fire Next Time being James Baldwin's book, the, the letter to his nephew that you referred to earlier, um, mm. where he towards the back half of the book. Uh, and this is what I this is my affection for Baldwin. It's sort of born out of a lot of this. It's the complexity of the work that he did. Um, but mm. the back half of the book is all about um, the the newly manifesting uh, sort of uh movement that Malcolm X was a part of with the Nation of Islam, because uh, there was a tension there between between he and, and Malcolm, uh, for, for anyone listening who I, I don't suspect will know all of these things. Uh, but I'm sorry, I, I'm going a little far. Uh, but That's okay. But to quote this, uh, it's that sinners have always for American Negroes been white is a truth we needn't labor. And even and every American Negro, therefore, risks having the gates of paranoia close on him in a society that is entirely hostile and by its nature seems determined to cut you down, that has cut down so many in the past and cuts down so many every day. It begins to be almost impossible to distinguish a real from a fancied injury. And one can very quickly cease to attempt this distinction. And what is worse, one usually ceases to attempt it without realizing that one has done so. Uh, My contention is that in addition to us being interested in the broader sort of sweep of human history and the general fact, um, more so than sort of the specific detail of human suffering, because I definitely don't want to get into a a pissing match between communities of people that have been um, uh, harmed in order to try to prove, you know, who got who got the worst end of the stick. Mm. I think it's more important that we recognize the fleeting nature of of human freedom um, and the extent to which people can mistreat one another once they have led each other to led themselves to believe that these other people aren't deserving of the kind of freedom that they enjoy. Um, So that's the first part. The second part, however, is that I think there is a universe of important issues that we are dealing with today um, that we view through a racial lens um, that we are obscuring in important ways because they're not primarily, fundamentally, exclusively about race, and that most of the the racial attributes of these conversations don't actually don't actually fix things. And what it leads us to do is not only miss the problem, but to imagine problems where they don't actually exist. Mm. Um, and, mm. and this, but, I yeah, think, is I, a, a big, I think a big so. problem. What I, what I want to be careful of here is, and and I'm by the way. I, too, recognize that, as I argue in uh, my book, Black Bodies, White Gazes, there's, a, there's an elevator, what's become now pretty famous now, uh, having written this about the elevator example of me in an elevator with a white woman, uh-huh. and the white woman reacts to my body 
um, in a very racist way, right? She tugs on her purse. Uh, she creates kind of a spatial distance. Or, or at uh, least you, or at least you imagine she does. <laughs> uh, right, that she's putting onto my body. Um, but what I grant in that, in that elevator scenario is that, uh, or that example, is that I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so, so, so uh, to speak fancily a bit, but to, to, to say I could be epistemically incorrect, namely uh, my knowledge... It, it might be that I've gotten it wrong, that my knowledge is not uh, felicitous. It's not uh, operating correctly here in some sense, right? But here's the thing. Uh, given the history, uh, you know, you, again, you're quoting Baldwin. The, the thing is, the history, again, is never past. It's always present. So there's a way in which um, the history, history mediates uh, the relationship between me and the white woman. There's a history of semiotics, uh, signs. There's a history of uh, affect and affectivity. There's a history of images that are impacting that moment. And while I could be wrong, the question becomes, am I prepared to behave in such a way that I could be wrong? In other words, what is at stake here? And oftentimes, uh, and so I would dispute uh, you here, I and mean, I would dispute the point about par- paranoia. Um, I'm, I'm troubled by that, by that notion. I think that given the history of white supremacy in this country, I think that when we respond to white ways of being, and notice I'm saying white ways of being, uh, and I'm equating those white ways of being to be forms of, of, of racism, uh, I, think we're, I think it's justified fear, given the history. And not only just the history, though, you see, because the history is present. It hasn't gone anywhere. It continues to mediate our relationships. It continues to inform white perceptions, white gazes, white affectivity, white politics, right, white uh, spatialization, white mobility. Um, so, uh, while, so, so while there is uh, this sense in which um, I want to grant the power of the black imagination, um, and, I, and, I don't wanna, and I don't want to buy into a form of tribalism that is so procrustean, that is so narrow, that somehow my life, for example, George Yancey's life, mm-hmm is governed by racism, right, all the time. But, but here, here's, here's the problem. Uh-huh. Regardless of what you dream about, I mean, look, I, I'm one, I am one who loves cosmology, for an example. I love thinking about the universe Me and too. structure. I like yeah. to talk about black holes, <laughs> and I like to think about quarks and, and uh, bosons. We, and, we, share, you know, we share that passion. I love to think about that yeah. stuff. But, and whether God exists, I mean, but, you know, Here's the problem. Unlike white bodies who think about these things, who reside in the, 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 the cosmos and, and, and to think about those things on a daily basis, they don't have to worry about being pulled over by the police because they're black. They don't have to be worried about being followed in a store in virtue of being black. Or they don't have to walk into a classroom and have their epistemic capacities doubted by students because they're black. And that applies to me. And that also applies to you. So, so even as you, right, given your liberal and uh, libertarian position, and I understand it so well, it, it, and I'll give you some more language. I think you, I think you are also in many ways uh, an existentialist in as much as you affirm a certain kind of fundamental freedom uh, and that you also uh, are critical probably of the, the, the counter-existentialist position, which says that, um, essence precedes existence. I think that for you, you'd want to argue that existence precedes essence. And while I agree with that, 
claim that existence precedes essence. And while I want to valorize freedom, I, I have to go to Foucault or to Marx or to Judith Butler or to Fanon or to Du Bois, and I have to think about, okay, how is that freedom situated? How is it truncated? How is it that that history controls my mobility? In fact, how does it deny my imaginative capacities? I think you may have read this piece where I, I talk about living in the projects. Uh, when I grew up, and I had a telescope, so I was really just an odd kid. Right? Uh-huh. So this kid, you know, living in 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 the so-called ghetto, um, and I I had this telescope about 16 years old. So I come down the steps with my telescope, and I came out to look at the moon and Jupiter and so on. And a white police officer saw me as I was coming out. And the first thing he said to me was, quote, I almost blew you away, end quote. Mm-hmm. And by that he meant that he thought that my telescope was a weapon. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which here's a black the black kid living in the projects, already weird, right? Having a telescope, right? <laughs> because I'm not supposed to have that. Uh-huh. Even, even, even according to my own peers, I'm not supposed to have it, right? Sure, sure. But here's a case in which I could have been killed because I'm trying to be imaginative, right? I, I don't want to think about race. So there are ways in which, um, if we don't think about race, as I said to one uh, black female at a, at, a, at a lecture once, um, where she talked about, her, uh, her not wanting to think about race on a daily basis or, or the fact that she had not encountered racism. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. clear what she meant by that. But there was a way in which I was trying to save her. I was trying to sustain her life by having her realize and never to forget that she's black in a white supremacist world. Well, I, I want to take a, and I mean, we're, we're approaching, approaching the end here because I know you got to run the class, but there's, yeah. there's so well, many. I have to go about, um, about 10 minutes. So okay. We're good. So far, cool. Yeah. Well, there's so many things I want to unpack here. I mean, there's, yeah, I think there's, there's, so much, man. <laughs> there's a, there's a bit of, of sort of essentialism in the way that we're talking about um, the, the black, the black experience. And mm. there is a bit of, um, absoluteness in the way that you talk about sort of history being present. Um, mm. When I think about history being present, I mean, I, it, it's sort of our subjective beliefs about mm. history are present, um, which is it is it is necessarily in abstraction. It is what we think history is. And mm. I don't think there's any doubt that amongst black people that there is a, a lot of uniformity of belief about um, sort of the history of black people in this country and the um, and the uniqueness of the deprivations and the risks that they face, but mm. but there is to bring this into the into the now, um, you know, conversations that are very active about uh, the, the one that that is currently being led by Black Lives Matter with respect to police shootings, uh, mm. for example. Um, that I think you know there is a, a narrative, um, and then there is the reality. of The narrative is that there are there are numerous instances. Uh, in fact, there have been certain people who have described this as daily, um, essentially state um, state executions of black men in America uh, that mm-hmm. occur in the street and no one is prosecuted for them. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, the, the, the description of these events versus the reality um, is dramatic, uh, mm-hmm. which is to say that it almost it, it does not happen routinely. Um, that people are killed by the police unarmed. Um, that just isn't a thing. And I say that as a person who has been a fierce opponent of 
the of the lack of investigation uh, that happens oftentimes when when there are police involved shooting um, of the sort of presumption of innocence uh, of the lack of transparency of the need for body cameras. And the truth of the matter is that I think the way that we talk about these issues um, tends to balkanize them and it makes it seem as though there is one particular problem um, when in fact there is a broader problem. Uh, when you talk about your experience of growing up in, a, in an area where, you know, you might be thought to be armed uh, because there is perhaps a lot of violence around uh, or, or a number of sort of people with guns or perhaps even just a prevailing belief about the, the danger of black men. And then there's also a reality um, in terms of criminal justice statistics and the overrepresentation of black men in those statistics. Um, the, there is there is something to be said for all of that. But if the fundamental issue if, you know, when it comes to trying to resolve these problems, rather than not not only trying to understand them, but improve matters, um, if it boils down to whatever we might think about the reason why that cop is doing what they're doing, um, the solution to trying to fix that, to trying to mitigate that problem might have nothing to do with race. I mean, it could be that the drug war, uh, and this is a perspective of my own, uh, that the drug war is is among the most significant reasons why uh, sort of the, the crime rate in certain communities continues to be as high as it does, why uh-huh. gang mem- gangs tend to be as powerful and influential as they are in certain communities. And the truth of the matter is we just don't get around to those conversations when sure. we are distracted by, you know, did Mike Brown have his hands up or not? I mean, sure, sure. one, I mean, that the case seems closed there so far as I'm concerned. Um, but two, you know, we, we've come a long way from uh, Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin. And, and you know who those two people are. Rosa Parks, Absolutely. Rosa Parks sitting on the bus. Everyone knows because Rosa Parks was the textbook example of what you want in a victim in, in a case. If you yeah, want to sure. prove it, she, she's innocent. Claudette Colvin, on the other hand, was, as I, as I think I recall, a young unmarried woman um, who did precisely the same thing. Uh, in the South, sitting where she shouldn't on the bus and was taken into custody. Um, and because she wasn't the right kind of victim, we didn't we didn't talk about this case. Uh-huh. Um, it is the case today that, you know, when we look at these watershed moments um, in, in racial uh, discourse here in the United States, that oftentimes the, the situations are they aren't that cut and dry. And I, I really do think that there are cases where we both are reaching um, in terms of trying to to trying to fulfill expectations about a narrative that exists. Sure. Um, let, me, let me say something about that. But yeah, um, and I'll so, stop so there. I'm Sorry. glad we're, we're, you and I, I mean, we've never met, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of the way in which you and I have, are charitably reading each other. And I appreciate the honesty because, look, to talk about race, we have to engage in fearless speaking and we have to engage in fearless listening. Which is, something, well. you, which is something you and I can do. Um, yeah, and, and, well, the, that's and right. quite I frankly, for many white people, they, they can't. They cannot That's have right. this conversation. So, so what I want to say, what I want to say is that I'm not reaching. I like to think that I'm not reaching um, when it comes to a certain kind of racial narrative. Um, although I will grant to you, I mean, I have to philosophically grant that there are different narratives. I have to to, to, to be able to. I mean, I have to grant that. Um, it's it's for me. It's not that history is absolute. And I'm just going to say this, it, it, not only because the way I feel about it, but in terms of its rhetorical flair, uh, it's white racism that's absolute. So it's not history that's absolute. It's white racism that's absolute. And I don't think I'm giving an essentialist reading of white people or even of black people. I will grant the diversity of experiences that black people have. I mean, look, it was probably a kid somewhere who was black with a telescope when I had mine 
who went out into his backyard, notice he has a backyard, uh-huh. and looked up at Jupiter, and there was no problem at all. But that was a class difference, right? But my claim is, you know, there's a way in which that black body uh, undergoes a kind of temporary reprieve, right? Because that same black body can move into a, a different context vis-a-vis white folk and white performances of racism and nevertheless undergo a form of violence, right? Um, it's the same thing that happens when black police officers take off their uniforms, right? So here are black police officers who work for the state, who are proxies of the state, if you will, um, who nonetheless, when they take off their uniforms, encounter precisely the thing, right, um, that black people who aren't police officers experience. In other words, they become, as it were, black beyond the badge, and so they, too, get stopped and pulled over, right? I mean, it, it, it's it, the case, I mean, the, according to the, the, the stat that I have, is that blacks and Latinos are three times more likely to be, to be profiled and stopped by police officers, even as it's the case that whites are more than four times likely um, to have illegal, you know, illegal stuff, to have contraband on them when they are, in fact, stopped, Right now, I'm not I'm not can, familiar with that statistic. I don't I don't dispute it, but I just I don't I don't know. Um, I, sure. I, I would, mean, what, what, what we can do is uh, one of our listeners or someone can look it up. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm open to, you know, but, to, but be, what to I, be corrected. But just just but to, the, just quickly, the, the just quickly as made, a as a as a bit of a qualification. I mean, I think anytime we look at a stat like that, I mean, clearly there's any number of sort of variables that can come into account with respect to where those stops are happening or how they're happening or why well, they might be yeah, concentrated but, among yeah, but a also certain we know group. on the New Jersey Turnpike, I mean, we know this, uh-huh. that police officers were told um, to stop black men who were driving in expensive cars. I mean, I mean that's, that seems to me is not just a stat. I mean, that is, that is just what we know. Yeah. Right. I, I don't. I, um, I, or, or, I don't know, but I've I fit both descriptions in the past. Um, having been uh, having been a gentleman of of a brown hue, uh, driving a yeah. hundred thousand dollar car, um, <laughs> and I was only stopped once by a policeman in a Stetson who was also uh, of a dark hue, and uh, he stopped me because I was speeding like hell. Um, but, but uh, I, I got you. But, yeah, look, look, but I mean, there's look, there's something I, I, anecdotal about some of that. But but yeah, the sure. research is worth looking at. So I, I no, grant sure, that sure. much. So 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 let me let me go on with the, with this other point. So I don't think I'm I'm giving an essentialist account. I think that I'm giving an honest account. I think that I'm giving um, a a I'm not giving I'm not giving you alternative facts. I'm, <laughs> giving, I'm giving you an account. That is informed by a certain kind of reading of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, uh, I'm giving you an account that is informed by an epistemology, an epistemological community of Black folk who share and talk about the experiences of white supremacy. But beyond the, you know, I think I think that the, the points that you make about the Black Lives Movement and the, the claims that they make about um, being under uh, state control or state uh, hegemony or what have you. I think we need to to look at that. We need to examine whatever the claims are that are coming out of that out of that wonderful contemporary movement. Um, while at the same time, we we have to remember what I mean. Richard Wright says when he when he encounters a form of racism that's not lynching. He says, you know, I've encountered these forms of if you call let's call them microaggressions. He didn't use that language. Microaggressions, racist microaggressions. He says it's as if I've been lynched a thousand times. 
right? So now while it's true that he didn't undergo lynching, I think we have to take into consideration the experiential dimension of what it means to be, to be black in America. And, and now notice what I just said, to be black in America. And I think this is your point. You want me to problematize that. You want me to, to critique that, undo it in some sense. And, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. So I want to argue that there are multiple ways of being black in America, politically, aesthetically, philosophically, religiously. But at the end of the day, this is my claim, at the end of the day, the black body, your brown body, my brown body, Obama's brown body, you know, uh, Skip Gates's brown body, those bodies live within, those black bodies continue to ride on the back of the bus. Those black bodies continue to, continue to be in the hold of those ships that brought us from, from, from Africa. And what I mean by that, analogously, is that we continue to be a site of nullification vis-a-vis whiteness. Now, am I making the claim that to be white in America is to be racist? Yes. And what do I mean by that? Do I mean that there aren't white people who are nice? That there aren't white people who are ethical? that there aren't white people who care for me, that may even love me. I'm not denying that at all. But I'm arguing that, as uh, Stephanie Wildman argues, and she's a white theorist, she says, look, as long as I live in a country that is systemically racist, I therefore must be racist. Or as, um, you know, as um, Robert Jensen says, who's also a a white theorist, he says, when I walk into a store, Mm -hmm. uh, when a black body walks into a store, and that black body is followed, and I'm not. I'm perpetuating white privilege, and I'm perpetuating racialized prejudice. For presuming, right? presuming that that following is, is in fact taking place, and it's, it's not oh, yes, merely a, a belief right. and, about, and, about and the following. While, and while I, while I think it's important, again, I, I must you know, look, after all, we're fallible, um, we're finite, um, our claims ought to be con- contested, but... Given the experiences that I've had, and I want to just say that those experiences were not imaginary, uh, given the experiences that uh, I've discussed with other black folk, where we constitute uh, a community, an epistemological community, where we talk about our experiences, right? And keep in mind, Du Bois said that, look, black people have a gift, and that gift is that we know our world, we know white supremacy better than white people. And I think you, you too can grant this, that look, under male supremacy, women know us better than we know ourselves, right? And the last thing we want to say to women is that the experiences that you're undergoing on a daily basis of male supremacy or androcentricity are imaginary, or that we need greater support for them, something like that, right? We want to, we want to challenge them, because in some sense we're then re-inscribing or we're reproducing multiple then layers of violence against those black, black bodies when we, or those women's, women's bodies, when we deny uh, their epistemic integrity, right? We, we do them an epistemic injustice. Um, so, so I want to say that what we really need to do then, for me, is what we need to do is move away from a, a kind of neoliberal atomic notion of the white subject or, as, you know, or white subjectivity. And we need to get white people to think about to feel about, to emote, the ways in which they're entangled in a system. And I think that becomes so important because often whites will become, get, get very defensive. You know, they'll, they'll say strange things to me like, well, you don't know my heart. Or they'll say things like, it's racist to generalize racism to all white people. When 
I don't think knowing your heart is important in these cases. In fact, I want to argue that why people don't even know the extent to which they themselves are racist because of the embedded nation, sorry, the embedded nature of racism itself. So I'm not going to, last thing I'm going to do is to ask a white person and to rely on their testimony uh, to tell me that they're racist, right? I'm not going to rely on their testimony. I'm going to rely on my own testimony in terms of the ways in which they treat me or the ways in which they have failed to undo the ties that bind them to a white supremacist system, the the kind of system that manifests itself in the form of when you go into a store, right, Mm -hmm. you don't get followed, or when you go to get a loan, uh, you get that loan despite you know your despite your your economic sorry despite your financial profile, mm-hmm. which could be worse off than uh, than someone who's black, but yet you get the you know you get the mortgage. Although although interestingly, um, part of the the narrative of the financial crisis recently, particularly in Prince George's County, uh, one of the wealthiest, uh, it is the wealthiest predominantly black community in America, is that. There are two examples of racism um, at work uh, by some accounts. One is that they were given predatory loans, which is to say they didn't qualify for loans and they were given them anyways. Um, mm. And the other claim is that they were – which is also motivated by racism uh, is mm. the one that you just made, which is that they're not given loans at all because mm. – despite the fact that they qualify because of racism. Um, mm. I think it's, it's, it's far too convenient that both walking into a store and being followed – and walking into a store and being ignored are sort of the manifestations of of this this white privilege. Um, yeah, why why I, convenient? Because I mean, I have many well, more well, convenient, examples. convenient, in, convenient in this respect. Um, when when I was talking to Professor Gates, as we got to the end of our conversation, I think we're at the end of ours. Um, he he said something about. Um, you know, the the fact that I needed to recognize these things in order to have this armor that I could take out into the world, and you know, as I as I as I've thought about that since I keep imagining myself running 20 miles in armor, um, heavy, heavy armor, the psychic load that one bears when they have certain beliefs about a world that is hostile to their existence. And I'll, I'll just say this sort of as a, as a sort of bookend to my, my own remarks here, the world is hostile in any number of important respects for all of us in different and unique ways. Um, and some of us can be black and have perhaps all of just presuming we have all of the burden that you have uh, suggested mm. we have and have the, uh, the the gifts that LeBron James does and thrive. Uh, and quite frankly, I've thrived in this country, mm. um, even if all of the claims that you make about the world are true, um, mm. which is to suggest that perhaps the way to view things when we talk about equality and fairness is this there is an impossible standard um, and it's a, a narrower standard, but which is to say equality under the law as sure, sure. a goal. And that is sure. sort of my minimal my minimal goal. And then secondary to that is not doing any harm, undoing laws that are sort of actively creating sure, sure. bad outcomes. Sure. Um, can, I, can I just get one, one other please, thing? Please, please. I'll give uh, you the, I, the closing. Yeah, and thank you in advance. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so I agree <laughs> with you about the armor. And unfortunately, we have to wear that armor. It's, it's, a, it's an armor that I don't want to burden my children with. As, as black children, um, as, as, as children who will be seen by white eyes and perhaps some black eyes who have internalized the white gaze as threats or as animals or as disposable. So the, 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 armory, uh, is ne- the armor is necessary, right? It's, nece- it's an existential necessity, and it's not that we want it. But also, I've thrived too. I mean, you, I, mean I can't deny it. Look, I have a PhD. I'm at Emory. I've published books. Mm-hmm. But you see, the thriving... 
or the, or the striving or the, 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 the flourishing that I, that I have achieved is always in spite of, you see, it's in spite of being black. And I think I'd like to thrive in a world in which there isn't the in spite of. Yeah. That is to say, with respect to race. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I want to leave it there because I know you got to run. Okay. Uh, I want to yeah. thank you so much for your time. And, and let's uh, let's continue the conversation. I don't, oh, I don't know what this is that I'm doing, but I, I'm interested in it. Well, so, yeah, whatever you so you're much. doing, it's, it's fabulous. All it's right. doing it. <laughs> thank you so okay, much, great. Dr. Yancey. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. The fifth column. So that's about it for this strange, uh, unusual dispatch for the uh, fifth column. I, as I said, enjoyed these conversations. I would love to hear what you think about this thing that we did. I am not really sure about it. I don't know if this is a, if this is a thing that we'll continue to do, but would love to get your perspective on it, how to make it better. I like uh, experimenting with, with new things in media. I am really uncomfortable with talking to myself in a room uh, with no one else present, uh, a microphone in front of my face and headphones on and imagining that tens of thousands of people will download this and listen to it. That's not hubris. That's what happens when we put out podcasts. One more thought. I don't want to kind of try to relitigate aspects of the conversation that we had, um, that Dr. Yancey and I had or Dr. Gates and I had. I hope I have a chance to talk to them again uh, about these topics. Like I said, um, or, or perhaps I didn't say, um, you know, the goal for me is always to, to be on sort of this, this journey of discovery. I think understanding is a continuum. It's not a destination. It's why... Uh, the voxification of media is something that bothers me. Uh, 500 words, read this and you will know everything you need to know about important matter. That is, that's generally not true. Um, if it's true, it might not be that important, but generally not. But there is something that I shared with Dr. Yancey after our conversation via email that I, I did kind of want to share with you as a bookend about my own perspective. Um, and this is a passage from James Baldwin, of course, that I am lifting from his book, The Fire Next Time, and I am almost certainly using this in a way that is not entirely consistent with Mr. Baldwin's own perspective on things. I can't know that for sure because I haven't asked him and he has passed away, so I can't, but that's okay. Uh, you you kind of get to, to do that. I, I defend appropriation. So here it is anyways. For the sake of one's children and in order to minimize the bill that they must pay, one must be careful not to take refuge in any delusion. And the value placed on the color of the skin is always and everywhere and forever a delusion. I know that what I'm asking is impossible, but in our time, as in every time, the impossible is the least that one can demand. And one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history in general, and the American Negro's history in particular, for it testifies to nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. Um, I won't bother to give you my sort of interpretation on that. Uh, perhaps you can, you can find your own. But as I said, I've enjoyed the conversations. Uh, thanks a bunch to, uh, to Dr. Yancey and Dr. Gates for hanging out. Uh, and thanks to you for listening if you got this far. Uh, good for you. I, I appreciate that. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Later. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column, 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 column.